1: What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 2, 2022, an Independence Day special dedicated to freedom, my freedom. More about that in just a little bit. Our show hits another milestone. Two years of shows. We began on the 4th of July, and we started with Dave Gunder's beautiful song, 4th of July, sung with Rachel Gunders, she's going to be on this show, bright young lady, a lot like Cassidy Hutchinson, super smart, earnest, honest, and we'll talk about Cassidy Hutchinson, but wait till you hear the troubadour with his daughter, we're talking about current events with Rachel Gunders, who's very bright, she's an investment banker in New York, and she sings so beautifully with her father, They recorded this when she was 16. Now she's in the Big Apple, New York City, and she's doing great. Rachel Gunders, welcome to your father and my podcast. We have a perfect summer book for you. It's called By the Grace of the Game, and I could not recommend it more highly. It's by Dan Grunfeld, and I got the audiobook version, and it was an excellent narration, but it's just right there with the kind of book that I love. It's about basketball. The full name of the book by the grace of the game, the Holocaust, the basketball legacy, and an unprecedented American dream. Ernie Grunfeld was just a little older than me, as I aspired to be a great Jewish basketball player, and he was, all-American and Tennessee Olympic champion had a great NBA career, even better as a general manager. But his son, that's quite an accomplishment too because his son documented his love for his father, but mainly his love for his family legacy that comes out of the Holocaust via his grandmother, who he calls Anyu. She's Hungarian, right on the Romanian-Hungary border, Oh my gosh, the drama of how that family survived. A lot of them didn't, but Anu did, and she's still alive, and so is Dan Grunfeld. That's our star interview. I get interviewed a little later in the show by my friend Chip Evans as we talk about big moves I'm making right now, Independence Day time, time to get your freedom, and I'm starting my own law firm, Craig Silverman Law, and Chip Evans He's so successful down in Texas, and he's a darn good talker, and we talk about all the crap that's going on in Texas. Migrant deaths, over 50? What a horrible situation, my God. What's going on? And then Uvalde, also a place where Chip Evans regularly practices law. He's licensed in Colorado And a lot of people in Texas are thinking about leaving because of restrictive abortion laws championed by people who are never popularly elected, not by the majority of Americans. And we have this Supreme Court ruling. We talk about it with Rachel Gunders. But I'm focused on the January 6th investigation. Great work, Liz Cheney. Great work, committee. Because Cassidy Hutchinson... Was it 10 out of 10 as a witness? And I know there's quarrel about, did it really happen? the Secret Service guy, Bobby Engel? Did he get manhandled by Trump or a weak attempt till he took the president's arms off of him? Now, she never said she saw that. She heard it from a guy, Tony Ornato. Is that the guy's name? Anyway, let these people testify. Maybe that's part of the plot, right, or the strategy. Okay, you want to argue about this little point that really doesn't get at the main thrust of it. The president knew that these people were armed. He said, they're not here to hurt me. He was going to go to the Capitol and lead the charge. And I tune in to right-wing radio and right-wing television to see how they will respond. First of all, they ignore it. Second of all, Tucker Carlson always leads the way. I have his sound, but honestly, I worked at Cahow for the better part of a decade. The guy they have on in the morning, he started calling Cassidy Hutchinson a twerp. Over and over, he called her a twerp. This dignified, courageous, credible witness. And (laughs) that's what this mobsterism, Trumpism is all about. Demeaning people who are on the other side. And then I listened to... Dan Kaplis in the afternoon, and his imagination took off because he said, oh, my God, how did that guy defy the president's orders? Trump was going to go there. He would have calmed down everything because that would have worked out so much better but for Bobby Engel defying a lawful order of the president of the United States, who would have gone there and, you know, like Jesus, peace would have broken out. I mean, it's such a distorted reality and it's about to destroy America because a lot of people listen to that bullshit. Not that much talk radio anymore, but a fair amount more than listen to this podcast. Maybe we can prove on that if you start sharing, subscribing, that sort of thing. Because I've been part of the media for a long time, I know how important it is. And when they cut my mic because I was ripping Donald Trump, I found another way to get a mic. And I had Jared Polis and Heidi Ganahl on my last episode, Joe O'Day in my home studio the week before. So this show matters. And the bullshit that I hear from Dan Kaplis, that Jared Polis uh, is afraid to confront uh, a strong interview, hey, listen to my interview. There were a lot of tough questions in there, buddy boy. And then Kyle Clark, he was willing to talk about Dan Kaplis came on to debate you, debate the idea of the situation in Douglas County where those teachers' uh, records were requested, situation where uh, Dr. Carveo was called an abortionist, and he had the goods, and we wanted to talk about it, and he accepted my invitation, but you said, no, I'm not going to talk about Kyle Clark, which is fine. But then to pretend that Kyle Clark is ducking you? No, no, these mistruths need to be cleared up. Dusty Saunders passed away. He was a media guy, and he had a show on Khow on the weekend, and he held people accountable in the media, and I tried to do that when I was there, and I do that with this podcast, too. And I've never heard such swill as I heard from Tucker Carlson, who came on after Cassidy Hutchinson made clear that Donald Trump was the ringleader, through Mark Meadows, to have a violent insurrection with the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Roger Stone, the Willard Hotel Group, including Joe Oldman, Joe Oldman, who was brought on the radio by George Brockler, who interviewed him on December 5th. That's part of the lawsuit against Salem. Dan Kaplis, who brought on Jenna Ellis a week after the election, this throw this, stop this, steel bullshit that could ruin America. And I texted him so, don't do this. Don't go down that road. But oh boy, he's gone down that road. And he wants to run for politics. He says that. And if Trump got in again, Dan would be a part of it. And it's not right any more than Tucker Carlson being part of anything. Because when I tuned into him, As I left Springer and Steinberg for the last time, you'll hear about that in my interview, Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Chip Evans toward the back end of the show. I've worked there for a little over three years. I had my own law firm, and I'm going to have one again. I had one for better part of 25 years, and 16 years before that, I was a prosecutor in Denver, and I prosecuted a lot of big cases. You know, the morning host on 710 now, he is prosecutor. prosecutor. He was the elected DA, but he knows how to be a trial lawyer. Darn good one. And he's got to know the evidence adding up that Donald Trump is guilty of seditious conspiracy. Yes, seditious conspiracy. He's the ringleader. And I think Merrick Garland's made a wise move to let the evidence become overwhelming. But come on, we need people to break away. Andrew McCarthy, A bright lawyer, a prosecutor. He prosecuted the blind sheik. He knows about Cetitia's conspiracy and he knows where his bread is buttered and he kind of disgusts me as he sucks up to those right-wing people. But now he watched Cassidy Hutchinson and read him in the National Review. It was devastating. I'm old enough to remember John Dean. I was in high school watching with my dad. It was so interesting, my dad turned off the sports. He was an okay, pretty impactful witness. There's cancer on the presidency, but Cassidy Hutchinson was better. She was a 10 out of 10, and she knows these people. She called him Rudy. She called Mark Meadows Mark, and they called her Cassidy or Cass. It was a beautiful presentation with the lawyer, extraordinary, Representative Liz Cheney. Bravo, bravo, even though I disagree with you about Roe v. Wade. Bravo. She's a CC, C Colorado College grad, and I brag about that every opportunity, but I want nothing to do with Tucker Carlson, who's the Father Coughlin of our day. Father Coughlin, a bigoted Catholic priest who had a pulpit in Michigan, as I recall, dominated the airwaves with the likes of Henry Ford, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory bullshit until he finally got his comeuppance. We had a Klan outbreak a hundred years ago when my grandpa Harry was a young lawyer in Denver. It was awful for him. The mayor of Denver was a Klansman. The Republican governor was a Klansman, Clarence Morley. Eventually, he got his. He ended up in prison. And now prison awaits Donald Trump at What's Tucker Carlson and the right going to do? I'll tell you, something broke between me and Dan Kaplis when I once heard him say, you know, if if Donald Trump gets charged, people can and should go to the streets. What? Come on, man, be responsible. Look at the damn evidence. It's overwhelming. It's on YouTube. It's on C-SPAN. These guys used to love Liz Cheney. Brockler used to emulate a guy like Adam Kensinger, a military guy, a white guy, short. I don't know if he's short. Anyway, Brockler's short. And he's short on speaking up against Trump. He did it a lot in private to me as he belly ached right before he lost big his AG race to Phil Weiser. He's in my studio telling me how Trump blew it and. it. I agree, and Trump's so unpopular, Brockler faced that headwind, and he was willing to call out Trump, but he's taken that pulpit, the Peter Boyles mic. Peter Boyles. Listen to Judith Berg and what she said about Peter Boyles on episode 101, when I also had on Joe O'Day, but let's get back to Tucker Carlson, because he blew me away as he started talking about you know what? I'm down here in Brazil with Bolsonaro. Yeah, I was just in. Hungry with Orban. Notice a pattern. Autocrats, totalitarians, Trump-like guys. The two places around the world is where I'm going to do my primetime Fox show. You know, I used to be on with O'Reilly quite a bit in that time slot. I bet I've had more guest appearances as a lawyer on Fox News than any lawyer in Colorado analyzing Chabanet, analyzing Kobe Bryant, analyzing one big case after another. Oklahoma City bombing committed by white bigot Timothy McVeigh. Anyway, back to Tucker Carlson. He starts saying, you know what's going to happen as he realizes that Donald Trump and John Eastman, I mean, it's already happened with Navarro, but people are going to be arrested for a seditious conspiracy only because they're guilty, but That's not what Tucker Carlson says. This is all criminalizing politics by Joe Biden. And he goes through a list that begins with some really bad guys, including a guy from InfoWars. And he gives the most one-sided presentation, but then he latches on to poor Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, who is the con artist of all time, who has the podcast that invades your phone forever once you listen to it, Heidi Ganahl went on it, and I gave her shit. But at least she won't go on InfoWars with Alex Jones or Schroyer. I mean, where do you draw the line? Tucker Carlson draws it nowhere. Tucker Carlson, who gets played almost every afternoon on the Dan Kaplan show, even though the Anti-Defamation League has branded him an anti-Semite and explained why many times, the king of replacement theory is the king of soundbites on the Dan Kaplan show. Now, Dan doesn't pick those sound bites necessarily, but he plays them because Ryan Schuling, who comes from Michigan and he's got these attitudes that Tucker Carlson's great guy and should be followed. And who? He's got a Twitter following and he's right winger. But listen who they lionize. And I thought she may be gone after getting beaten the primary pretty bad, Tina Peters, but she says it was fixed. You know, Tina Peters is tied at the hip with Sharona Bishop, America's mom, who's tied at the hip with Lauren Boebert. Occasionally, they start fighting, but after Tucker Carlson talks about poor Steve Bannon being persecuted, the guy who built Trump followers on the wall did it with a paraplegic. The paraplegic hired the firm I was at. I swallowed hard and I said, well, he's a paraplegic. He was probably a abandoned victim because I want to be on the right side of this battle for democracy. That's who I am. Anyway, back to Tucker Carlson, lionizing Steve Bannon who had to get two pardons. Probably will need more before this is over. Con guy in bed with some Chinese rich guy. He got arrested on his mega yacht. That guy's built so many people out of so many things and he's got this podcast empire and he regularly features Tina Peters. Tina Peters who's charged with, I think it's 10 crimes, seven felonies, Mesa County, Dan Rubenstein, Bill Weiser's office help but Dan Rubenstein, a Republican, grand jury indictment in Mesa County. I've had Scott McGinnis on. He explained the Tina Peters story. I wrote about it until... I couldn't write about it anymore because Tina Peters pretty recently became a client of the firm with which I was formerly affiliated. Yeah, she hired Harvey Steinberg, and in this clip, you'll hear Tina Peters say Harvey Weinstein. She was going to say Harvey Weinstein, but all she knows is she's got herself, you know, uh... A lawyer who she will use to argue that, hey, it's all a plot. Just listen to my lawyer. Listen to what Tucker Carlson played, ironically, through my car radio. Yeah, I have serious. Talk radio is so weak in this town now. You got to have serious, too. And I, I wanted to hear what Tucker Carlson would say. And picture me driving out of downtown Denver for the last time. And not only does he talk about Bannon and Sharona Bishop and Tina Peters, and then he gets to Peter Navarro, and I cut it off there. Peter Navarro, who is one of the architects of the insurrection, he, 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 he was the master of the plan that was really wild and violent, and Trump was out of control. This guy throws his lunch against the wall, ketchup dripping down. People think it was a burger. The guy puts ketchup on his steak. That's the kind of dude he is. Bad guy. But Tucker Carlson doesn't talk about that. Eventually, after Navarro, he gets to John Eastman, who had his phone seized. And then uh, Jeff Clark, this would-be attorney general who's never done a criminal investigation, an environmental guy. And Carlson gets them all on his guests. And all these people, Sharona Bishop and Tina Peters and uh, Steve Bannon, they're coming for you. These people are getting arrested for you. They're dying for your sins. Don't you see it? Can't you contribute to their defense fund? And then we'll hire the best lawyers possible. Okay. I'm going to take the other side. Craig Silverman Law. Is about to begin. Listen to soundbite one, and I think you will understand where I'm coming from and where I'm going to, because I'm not going to disappear. I'm going to hold the worlds I know accountable, the media world, the legal world. Everybody deserves a great lawyer. I'm down with that. And a conflict-free lawyer, I'm down with that, too. But Tucker Carlson's problem. He's a big problem. He needs to be called out like the Anti-Defamation League did. And like I'm doing right now, the answer to bad speech, deceptive speech, is more speech. Give a listen to this soundbite this week,
2: touching on some Colorado characters. On November 15th of last year, the Justice Department arrested one of the most prominent critics. That would be former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. Now, what does Steve Bannon do wrong? Did he commit a crime on January 6th? No, he didn't. And no one claims otherwise. Instead, Bannon's crime was that he didn't bend the knee for the January 6th committee. He said an executive privilege. According to Nancy Pelosi, that means Steve Bannon belongs in jail.
3: Do you think people who refuse to comply with congressional subpoenas should be prosecuted by the Justice Department and at the end of the day go to jail?
4: Yes. You do?
5: I do. I do. Well, first of all, this... You know, people say, well, this hasn't happened before. We haven't had an insurrection incited by the president of the United States and one of his toadies uh, having knowledge of advanced knowledge of that happening. Uh, So, in fact, it's important for a number of reasons. It's important for us to find the truth about what happened on January 6th, an assault on our Constitution, our Congress and our Capitol.
2: (laughs) An assault on the Constitution. Okay, so, no, in other words, we don't arrest people for ignoring congressional subpoenas, particularly when they cite executive privilege, a principle that has a long history in American history. We've never done that, but we can do it now because it was, quote, an insurrection, an insurrection that wasn't armed, wasn't planned. and didn't actually insurrect anything, but it was still an insurrection. Now you're beginning to see why it's been so important from the very first day for the media to describe what happened on January 6th, not as a riot. But it's an insurrection because if it's an insurrection, they can violate your civil rights and they have and they continue to a day after Steve Bannon's arrest. This would be November 16th, 2021. The FBI raided the home of Sharona Bishop. That's the former campaign manager for Congresswoman Lauren Bollert of Colorado, according to Bishop. Here's what happened, quote, while homeschooling my youngest children, the FBI decided it was necessary to bust open my front door with a battering ram and put me in handcuffs while they trampled through my home, terrifying my family. My daughter was pulled around by the hoodie, by her hoodie, by one of the agents. Now, why would you do this to the former chief of staff of a sitting member of Congress? Well, the FBI gave no reason. They took Bishop's cell phone and they left, never charged with a crime. Then that same day, and you didn't read this in the New York Times either, the feds hit the home of Mesa County Republican clerk, Tina Peters. What was the justification for that raid? We're breaking into a lot of houses all of a sudden of Trump voters. Why? Well, in this case, DOJ said Peter's raised doubts about the legitimacy of the last election. That's not allowed anymore. Can't question the outcome. They didn't arrest her. They just tore her house apart. Peter called the raid evidence of, quote, a level of weaponization of the Justice Department we haven't seen since the McCarthy era. But of course, even during McCarthy, no one did that. In May, she came on Fox Denver to explain what exactly happened to her. Watch.
5: My attorneys, when they read the indictment the other day, they, I mean, uh, Harvey Wein, uh, Steinberg and I've got the best attorneys, and they just laughed. They said, are you kidding? This is, this is a, a political maneuver to shine the light on me, to keep me from running against and defeating Jenna Griswold.
2: Oh. So in the name of punishing people for complaining about the last election, they're subverting elections currently taking place. And last night, the woman you just saw, Tina Peters, lost her bid for secretary of state, which, of course, was the whole point of targeting her. Peters would not be the last opponent of the Biden administration running for office to be targeted by the Justice Department on June 3rd. Peter Navarro, who was a trade aide to Donald Trump, was arrested at Washington National Airport and put in leg irons and put in jail So
1: there you have it. This is going to be quite a show. It starts great with Dan Grunfeld. I confess his father was a role model, a hero of mine. And after reading this book, so is the son, but especially the grandma on you. This guy's brilliant. He excelled at Stanford. And he's, I think he's an investment banker too, like Rachel Gunders. Wait till you hear her, the daughter of our troubadour. And my buddy, Chip Evans. I trusted him to tell my story, and I like listening to his analysis of what's going on from the Republic of Texas. This is quite a show. Thanks for being part of it. Enjoy. llc.com.
0: Now back to The Fred
1: Silverman Show. This is so exciting for me. I get to read books and the ones I really love, like By the Grace of the Game, I contact the author, here Dan Grunfeld. Next thing you know, I'm talking to him. Dan Grunfeld, mazel tov on this amazing book.
6: Thank you, Craig. I really, really appreciate it. It's great to be here with you.
1: The full name of the book, By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and An Unprecedented American Dream, and it's about your family, the Grunfeld family, and oh my gosh, the characters in it, but the star of this show is you, Dan, because you are a gifted writer. I need to find out where you got your ability to write like that.
6: Well, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, the star of the show is my grandmother. <laughs> she's, she's really, she's the star of the book. But no, I really appreciate the compliment. I've always loved to write. Ever since I was a little kid, I would come home from basketball practice and I would write stories and poems. And it's just something I always love to do. And I've applied myself to it, just like I did with basketball. I studied a lot, I practiced, you know, I've written you know, hundreds of thousands of words. And so, you know, that's, I, it didn't come easily. And I certainly applied myself to it. It's just something I really love to do. So th- thank you for saying that.
1: But you are very determined, and we know that because from an early age, you set your sights on going to one of America's greatest universities, Stanford, and uh, I wondered if your basketball career interfered with studying creative writing. I played small college basketball at Colorado College. We were on the block plan, which was a little different, but I never thought I I could balance most classes with creative writing. Did you take creative writing at Stanford? Is that how you got so good?
6: So I didn't take creative writing as an undergrad, although I took many writing classes. I went to business school at Stanford as well. And then I took more creative writing classes. And it was actually at the time that I was writing my book. As an undergrad playing basketball, it was limiting to the coursework, right, and to the the classes you could take. And so I, I wasn't able to take creative writing as an undergrad, but I did take it when I was in grad school.
1: The star of your book really is your grandmother, Anyu, and uh, we will get to her, but I I just want to focus on the writing because a lot of us aspire to be like you, and you have so many decisions to make, and you started, what, as a preteen? The part that got to me is your dad is the successful general manager of the New York Knicks. I have to tell you, your dad and I are about the same age, I know these teams. I followed your dad's career so closely. He was a role model for me, just a little bit older. But your perspective started there. Well, you, I think you were on top of the world. Yeah, you run a Madison Square Garden, and you're living in northern New Jersey. Why did you pick that point to start?
6: You know, I, I just wanted to tell a very true human story and my childhood. It's very important in the whole narrative arc, right? Because my I was born differently than my ancestors. You know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My dad is an immigrant to this country who fled communism, and I was born into privilege. You know, my dad is an NBA basketball player when I was born. Then he was a general manager of the Knicks, and so. Not only was it important to provide those details to, for the reader to get to know me and my journey, but it also really links to the intergenerational story I'm telling, right? How differently I grew up as, you know, than my, my ancestors.
1: My old man, Sheldon Silverman, was, and as my hero, I love him to death. He's gone now. Your dad, I hope he's still doing great, but what I loved about your book is your admiration for your father, your love for your father, your respect, and he deserves all that. But that's got to be one of the toughest things in the world to write about your father and your life trying to live up to him as a great basketball player and just trying to be the man that he is.
6: Absolutely. I'm glad that you took those things from the book because it's the truth. I do love, respect, admire my dad a lot what he's been through how he's carried himself he's had a great deal of success on the basketball court and later as an executive but you know given where he came from right the only player in the history of the nba and actually the history of any major professional sport in america the only players parents are holocaust survivors you know and, and so i do have that great sense of pride and, and and love for him and it is it is a challenge to you know to convey that onto the page and to reflect that and it took me more than five years to write the book and that was a big part of it was just, you know, opening myself up as much as I could, continuing to go deep and and really mm-hmm. reflect those emotions. And it was, it is a difficult thing to do, but I'm, I'm very pleased with the finished product because it, it does represent how I feel about him.
1: Talk about going deep. Um, Ray Allen was one of the great shooters from long range ever. And his forward to your book might be one of the greatest forwards I've ever read, ironically written by a guard. Anyway, I don't know if you've thought about (laughs) that, but tell everybody how you know Ray Allen. I mean, you're connected to the Knicks and especially the Milwaukee Bucks through the mom side of the family. But Ray Allen, just brag on him a little bit because he seems like quite a man.
6: He really is. And yeah, Ray was recently named one of the top 75 players in NBA history. And I'm lucky to have a relationship with him because my dad was the general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks when Ray was the star shooting guard and I was an up-and-coming shooting guard in high school at the time. I had Ray's jersey on the wall of my bedroom, number 34 for the Bucks. and he was always very good to me, and, you know, he didn't know at the time that my dad's parents were Holocaust survivors, and my family didn't know that Ray's passion was to educate people on the Holocaust. He saw Schindler's List in college, and he was moved. You know, he said, this is a Jewish, this is not just a Jewish tragedy, this is a human tragedy, and so he made it his mission to to educate and to be involved, and So much so that President Obama named him to the board of the Holocaust Museum in 2016. So he really, he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. And I was able to connect with Ray once I had written the book and kind of share the story with him. And, you know, I just asked for his support and he didn't hesitate. You know, he wrote, as you said, this moving, amazing forward. And so I always tell people as much as I admired him when his jersey was hanging on my bedroom wall, I admire him even more now for the type of person he is.
1: I was trying to figure out your Colorado connections. Uh, because you did beat DU several times when you played at Stanford. I don't think CU was part of your conference back then. You're that old now, Dan. And
4: yeah, that's right.
1: uh, have you traveled to Colorado much? Do you, do you come here ever?
6: Sure. Yeah, I spent time in Colorado. We we played at DU my junior year. It was a close game. They had a, a very good team. You know, Rodney Billups, who would become the coach of the team, was was a player as was Yemi Nicholson. I still remember their team. Uh, So we beat them in Denver. Uh, I've been to, I have friends who live in Denver, so I've been to Colorado several times. Beautiful state. Uh, So, and actually, I guess one direct connection to my basketball career, and I write about in the book, I was invited to try out for the USA basketball national team right before I hurt my knee. You know, so I wasn't, I actually wasn't able to go to the tryout, but that tryout, of course, is in Colorado Springs where the uh, Olympic facility is.
1: Okay, let me ask you this, because you would have been a Rhodes Scholar, but for basketball, you write about that, and you prove it with your beautiful writing, and you know a lot about Milwaukee, where you spent your teenage years. We're going to get to the fact that you know a lot about Israel. Now, what historic figure connects Milwaukee, Israel, and Denver?
6: I'm going to say Golda Meir.
1: That's right. She went to high school here. (laughs)
6: All right, so I know Meyer, of course, Israel, and then I know she's from Milwaukee, so I just no, took a shot at Colorado She had connect.
1: troubles in Milwaukee, sort of like when you were first there, but it got to the point where she went to live with relatives in Denver and went to Denver North High. Rodney Billups no went kidding. to GW, which is where I went, about 20 years before his brother, Chauncey. We've all heard of him. Before we leave sure. Colorado, how about Nikola Jokic. Have you ever seen anything like that?
6: Uh, no, he's unbelievable. <laughs> the, the size, the skill, the passing ability, the what a great teammate he is. I mean, he's the MVP for a reason. Unbelievable basketball player.
1: You know, we have to find ways to watch it here because we have a cable dispute, so we scream it. But I imagine around the world people are tuning in to watch Jokic because he's just different and better, right?
6: Yeah, and he plays the game the right way. He makes people around him better you know he's kind of he reminds me of larry bird right who just was such a great passer and just saw the game in a different dimension than everyone else and that's what jokic is and and again not to mention his massive size so yeah just a one 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 of a kind player
1: right but the joker doesn't talk trash like larry bird and larry bird's a big part of your book, and you had an amazing dinner with him your dad tried to cover him did the best he could your dad just a sensational college player. And then he had a great career in the NBA, but not Larry Bird level. And uh, Larry Bird let him know it, right?
6: Yeah, of course. I mean, My dad was a phenomenon as a high school basketball player, a phenomenon as a college basketball player. He was more of a role player in the NBA. and But he went head to head with Bird many, many times. And he, he always just says, he laments those, those matchups, right? How impossible it was to guard him and he would let you know about it right he's a notorious trash talker and so yeah he was I mean Bird was one of the the best of the era and my dad was certainly on the receiving end of some of his greatness
1: I watched the uh, 30 for 30 with your father Ernie and Bernie Bernard King your dad's teammate at Tennessee and then the Knicks what a powerful story and what a stud your dad was back in college the reason I couldn't emulate your dad I wasn't quite as tall, but he was built. He was a starker. You know that Yiddish word?
6: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's true. And, you know, I write in the book that when he took a visit in high school to Notre Dame, their head football coach took one look at him and said, hey, come play basketball in Notre Dame, but you should play football for the Irish, too. <laughs> you know? He was he was like 6'5", 225 as a high schooler. He's just, he's a, he's a bull, you know, and he was always built that way. He was overpowering. He's also very competitive, very tenacious, and yeah, listen, he, him and Bernard, they formed one of the greatest duels in college basketball history at Tennessee, and my dad you know, ended his career as the all-time leading scorer in the history of the school and the second leading scorer in the history of the conference, right? So just speaks to what a dominant college basketball player he was.
1: Yeah, but like father, like son, I mean, you had an amazing basketball career derailed by an injury. I'm not going to give it all away, but there are so many dramatic moments in your career, but... I love the part when you were trying to get to Stanford and competing in national high school tournaments. You know, that's kind of a new phenomenon for guys your age, but you did it. And you just, you went wild and, and you made it to your dream school. Stanford at a time that Stanford was an amazing powerhouse in college basketball. How did you do it?
6: Listen, I wanted it really bad. As you know, from the book, I was very, very determined. But you need luck, you need timing, and there was some skill involved, right? And I think it was a combination of those things. I played really well at the right times, and things just happened to work out for me. But it is a testament to if you set a goal, you really need to do all you can to achieve it. You know, I put the work in. I was very thoughtful and intentional about how I approached it. I I wanted to go to Stanford, right? And so, but, you know, I I just played really, really well when I needed to, and at the end of the day, I got there.
1: I know you went on to get an MBA. I was thinking about you because Anthony Gonzalez, the congressman Republican who voted against Trump, went to Ohio State, played football, then got an advanced degree at Stanford. And I admire him because he stood up. Anyway, back to you and basketball and and, and your experience at Stanford. Did it live up to everything you thought it would be?
6: And then some, you know, as a I often say, you know, I made the best, aside from my wife and my family, I made the best decision of my life at 17 years old, you know, to go to Stanford, because I had this dream of what it might be in a great school, a great basketball program close to my grandmother. But I didn't know at that age, how much it would broaden my horizons, the type of people I would meet, the perspectives that I'd be exposed to, you know, different than my own. You know, there's a real international community at Stanford, which I appreciated so much getting to know people from all over the world becoming friends with people from all over the world so and then on the basketball court you know we were the number one team in the country we had a, a lot of really good moments there too i had a nice career so and then i got to spend all that time with my grandmother i couldn't have asked for a better college situation
1: we will get to the start of the show because i knew and the way she made it out of europe it's just extraordinary but Before we leave basketball, I'm a a Colorado trial lawyer, spent my first 16 years as a Denver prosecutor, and I thought what I learned playing basketball, it just was invaluable. Going from offense to defense, preparing, but having to improvise as things change. I know you're a great writer. You've got a business degree, but have the lessons from basketball translated into your line of work?
6: Yes, 100%. You know, I now work for a venture capital firm, and I, I often say how lucky I feel to have the basketball experience that, that does translate directly to my professional life. You know, The competitiveness, the discipline, performing under pressure, dealing with adversity, communicating with people, some who you like a lot, some who you may not have the best relationship with, some who are like you, some who are different. Uh, there's so many, the leadership, the teamwork, you know, all the things that you naturally pick up as an athlete and certainly as a basketball player, they really serve you in the, in the professional world. And, you know, I, so I'm, I'm so grateful for my experiences. I think they give me a leg up.
1: They do. And you're going to be on my starting team of guests, but it's pretty much a prestigious group, the front court especially, because I've had Spencer Haywood on. Oh my gosh, before you were born, his rookie season in Denver with the ABA, you never saw anything like it. It was sort of like yeah. Moses Malone. He it was, it, it was MVP and Rookie of the Year. But another guy yeah. I had on was was Bill Walton, whose book, uh, what was Back from the Dead? It really was inspirational for anybody with an injury. But your book, too, because, my gosh, what happens to your knee and then your dedication rehabbing it with that hard trainer you found in the Bay Area I mean that's that's uh, your book is for anybody who has to rehab a heart injury, and I bet you read that Bill Walton book too, wasn't it? Something.
6: I've read parts of it. I haven't. Oh. I haven't read the whole thing, but oh. I, I need to. Um, yeah, he he certainly dealt with you know so many injuries, and he's this legendary Hall of Fame player, of course. And uh, you know, for me, I suffered my own disappointment with my knee injury at the worst time, and yeah, I'm very honest in the book about how crushing that was right injuries are the worst part of sports and you just hate to see it happen certainly when it happens to you it's an awful thing but you know my grandparents survived the holocaust right my dad came to this country not speaking a word of english never touched a basketball lost his older brother and then he became a, an olympian for the united states not long after right so i had these examples of what was possible and so i mourned my injury but then i got to work you know and i stayed positive and i just tried to rebuild you
1: already brought up the word leg. And I said the word mazel top right at the outset. Mazel has a lot to do with life. My ancestors, Ashkenazi Jews, they were in the Pale of Settlement. I found out that on my mother's side, uh, her grandmother lived in Kiev. I knew about some oh, wow. Polish area roots. Never quite Hungary, Romania like your family. But fortunately, because of poverty and probably bigotry, my ancestors left before your ancestors did and got to America in the first wave and were ensconced in places like Denver. I'm fourth generation, you know, so I'm sure I have cousins in the old country that I never met, I don't think about, but not you, not your dad's family. I, I studied your dad's career. I didn't know he was the son of Holocaust survivors. I thought he was a tough kid from New York City, but my gosh, just taught... Talk about the roots of you. I will say this. I had a grandma, Goldie, yeah, Goldie Silverman, and she was a prototypical Jewish grandma, bubba, and she could cook. Not necessarily the Hungarian things, but you start the book with your grandma's cooking, and uh, that's some powerful writing. I mean, there's a book for food lovers too, right?
6: it is you know food is a big theme throughout the book food and my family is a vessel of love my grandmother is this amazing cook still to this day she turned 97 a few weeks ago um still cooking amazing meals they're yeah she's incredible as you know from the book they're the dishes that her mother made for her family before they were taken Auschwitz, right so it's not just food it's bigger than that and it was a very appropriate place for me to start the book and yeah, my grandma, you know, as I, I say often, she is not only my hero, she's also a hero. And she is, you know, she survived the Holocaust in Budapest. She was saved twice by Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg, but she risked her life to save others. And, uh, and so, you know, she, she just has this incredible, you know, fighting spirit, determination, will to live. And it's, it's just an inspirational, remarkable journey. And you know, my, my grandfather, who passed when I was young, but he also survived in a work in a forced labor camp in Hungary. You know, they met and formed a family after the war. And so my dad was born under communism in Romania. So when you say you just thought he was a tough kid from New York City, he is that because he but he came to New York City when he was nine years old. Again, not speaking a word of English and never having touched a basketball.
1: Boy, it's fascinating how your book intersects with other authors that I've recently interviewed, including the Glenn Morris story. He was a decathlete from Colorado in 1936. You educated me that was the first basketball Olympics and how uh, before they got there, they had to take down uh, what was it? The the Sturmer signs that the Jews are our misfortune. I got that phrase from your book. But anyway, it's... uh, the other thing is Raoul Wallenberg. I've had Alex Kershaw on who wrote The Envoy, and I can't get enough of Wallenberg because talk about a historical hero, and, and his story is appropriate for today because it looks like the Russians made him disappear. But tell everybody why Raoul Wallenberg was such a hero and how it impacted you even being here.
6: Yeah, listen, we're not having this conversation. If it's not for Raul Wallenberg, I, I literally wouldn't be here. Uh, he, you know, he's a diplomat from Sweden. He went to Budapest at the end of the war with the mission to save, the Jew- save Jews there. And so he issued protected passports called Schutz Passes, and they gave Jews a level of security for some time. And my grandmother was able to get one for herself, and that's when she risked her life. and She got 17 passes for other people. After a while, that was no longer recognized, and my grandma was captured by the Nazis, and she was put in the Budapest ghetto. Uh, the Nazis stayed out of the ghetto, right? Jews administer daily life there. And at the end of the war, my grandma, who had been reunited with her brother in the ghetto, they saw 20 Nazis enter with machine guns over their shoulders. And word quickly spread that they were there to kill the remaining 80,000 Jews in the ghetto. And so my grandma and her brother raced up the steps of the building they were sleeping in, and they found a small attic space, and they hid in there, a room for about four or five people comfortably. There were like a dozen in there packed, and they waited for 10 minutes and 20 minutes and an hour, and nothing happened. And they finally checked and the Nazis had retreated and the ghetto was clear and they were soon liberated. That was 1945, 40 years later. And they never found out why, right? They weren't asking questions. They were free to go. And 40 years later in 1985, a movie was made of Raul Wallenberg's life. Richard Chamberlain played the title character. And it was in that movie that my grandma saw one of the final scenes of Wallenberg learning about uh, order to massacre the remaining Jews in the ghetto. He raced to the gates of the ghetto, confronted the general, and told him, you will hang for this, let these people go, the war is over, and Wallenberg talked the general out of the massacre. So it took my grandma 40 years to learn that he saved her life twice.
1: Oh my goodness. It gives me chills. And you think about what happened in Hungary. It's toward the end of the war. The Jews in Hungary had been pretty well protected. But then even as the Nazis were losing, Adolf Eichmann got from behind his desk and he went to Budapest and said, you better start taking care of the Jews here. And a lot of them got exterminated. Your family barely escaped. And I'll tell you, it you may have heard of Professor Ward Churchill at the University of Colorado. And in the wake of mm-hmm. 9-11, he wrote about how America's chickens had come home to roost. And he talked about the people in the buildings being little Eichmann's. And I was doing media then. And I was really not pleased about that because Eichmann was the devil incarnate and he's
6: analogizing
1: these victims in New York skyscrapers to that you write about Eichmann have you thought about that
6: well I wasn't aware of that comment but I certainly you know I wrote about Eichmann intentionally right and he it's he's juxtaposed with Wallenberg there's good and there's evil you know and that's in my book right there's these these opposing forces live alongside each other. So there's joy and there's pain and there's tragedy and there's triumph. And Eichmann and Wallenberg are representative of that, right? Wallenberg is this ultimate hero who sacrificed himself to save others. Uh, you know, that that's who Wallenberg is. Then you have Adolf Eichmann, as you mentioned, a monster, right? Who was responsible for, he was the architect of the Holocaust in many ways. And so I wasn't aware of the comment you mentioned, but it would have upset me just like it upset you because this is one of the, one of the most notorious figures in history. And the fact that they were both in Budapest when my grandmother was there, to me, as I was researching, was so interesting. And it was so representative of kind of like that dichotomy in life. That's why I wrote about those two so closely linked together in addition to being involved with my grandmother's story.
1: You are a very smart person. And I always was bothered by Hannah Arendt, talking about the banality of evil and referencing Eichmann as some kind of desk worker. And maybe I resisted that because I didn't want to think that that many people are susceptible to this virus of white nationalism or white supremacy or bigotry. You know what I'm talking about? And maybe I shouldn't rebel against that. Uh, Have you thought about Hannah Arendt? I mean, do you think that... I don't know. It's like I talk to Ukrainians now, and uh, do you hate the Russians? And yeah, they kind of do. And is it at what point do you say, no, you're giving them a pass when you say it's the banality of evil? Your book is all about heroes and villains. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that.
6: Yeah. And you know, I mentioned Hannah Arendt's book in my book. Right. Uh, You know, I, I referenced that. And it's an interesting point, right? I think that there is something to take from that argument that people, are susceptible to influence of others right and i think that's a point in eichmann you know the banality of evil yeah this is an ordinary man a desk worker this isn't a psychopath or even a sociopath but he was responsible for millions of deaths right so there's that argument i think it's fair right to say people can be influenced and maybe people who aren't inherently evil can be pushed to do some pretty awful things however I don't, you don't want to trivialize anyone who did something of that magnitude, right? Because the good people of the world could never be pushed to do that. So while, you know, maybe someone like Eichmann wasn't in a vacuum, the monster that you would think because he he was responsible for the death of millions of people, I still don't think that it's responsible, you know, to, again, to trivialize his actions and to excuse it or write it off because, the good people of the world, and there are so many more great people than than bad people would never allow themselves to be brought to that point.
1: I love the way you write about uh, your Jewish heritage and the way you're keeping it going. And at its best, it's one Jewish family, right? We all come um, from the same tribe. Your family was everything. And then you have extended families. But growing up, you really felt part of the New York Knicks family. And Tell everybody about the Jewish roots of basketball, especially in New York City.
4: Yeah, there's
6: really deep root, Jewish roots in basketball. And so it was a game played by immigrants, mostly in the tenements of New York City in the 20s and 30s. 20s and 30s. Those, were, those were Jews. And so the, the first game in NBA history was played in 1946, not long after Auschwitz was liberated by the, you know, it was the New York Knicks versus the Toronto Huskies. And all five members of the Knicks, starting five, were Jewish. The first basket in NBA history was scored by a guy named Ozzy Schechtman, Jewish Catherine Hugh Gardens Queen. So you know, there was there were such deep Jewish roots to basketball. And you know, it's important for me to kind of to write about that. And I think that you know, it's related to the Holocaust, right? Because of what happened to the Jewish people when you see Jewish athletes having success, there's a little bit of extra pride in that right given what had happened and so it was it was nice to write about you know this jewish presence in the game of basketball that of course is not today not what it was but there there is still you know a connection there
1: when i grew up which is when your father grew up the legendary coaches in the nba were both named red and they were both jewish guys red holtzman for the knicks and red Hourback for the celtics Heck, when your dad and I were little boys, the Celtics seemed invincible, so much so I'd fantasize about Red Auerbach being in the house across the street, watching me shoot in my driveway, because I want (laughs) to play for Red. But surely that influenced your dad and made him think, hey, there are some Jewish guys. I can make it.
6: Yeah, I think it's 100% true. And, you know, I write about both those Reds in the book, Red Holtzman was like a grandfatherly figure to me. He became my dad's mentor with the Knicks, someone who we love a lot in my family. Uh, and then there's Red Auerbach, who you know scouted my dad at the Olympic combines. But I do think that you know seeing, you know, watching NBA games, particularly for my dad as an immigrant, learning the language, kind of assimilating to the United States, but then to see, oh, there, there are Jews who are involved. Those, those two men on the sidelines are, are proud Jewish Americans. I think that was nice and was inspirational for him.
1: I'll tell you another guy... Uh, and my family always said, hey, did you know that guy's Jewish? I'm sure my dad said, look at Ernie Grunfeld. If he can make it, you can. And I thought, well, okay. I'm not quite as chiseled as him. But <laughs> we knew about uh, Jewish comedians. And one we liked, and my dad liked to gamble, and I'd go with him. We'd see Buddy Hackett in Las Vegas. Now, you're, you're, you consider yourself a power forward, right, Dan?
6: Not well, so I was a shooting guard in college, and then okay. I was a small forward as a professional. I actually did play a little power forward, but uh, that wasn't my nat- natural position. Right, I but, was but more you, of a, a swing man.
1: You weren't a point guard. You were kind of relying on somebody else to get you the ball, right?
6: Absolutely,
1: 100%. And and those guys tend to become your best friends, right? So I yes. know that out of my five best friends in the world, three or four of them have been point guards for me. And it, the point I'm making is I had a buddy who played with me at George Washington, starting point guard, Curtis Goodman. His son gets married and who's at the wedding but the daughter of Buddy Hackett, and I'm sitting next to her. Then I read your book about Buddy Hackett. I didn't know it at the time where I would have told her the story. Can you tell the Buddy Hackett story? Because to me, that is a spectacular part of your book.
6: Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You know, so after my grandparents survived the Holocaust and they lived in Romania under communism, my grandmother still talks about how brutal that was. You know, no freedom. You worked for the state. You weren't allowed to have anything. And my my grandparents were able to save up money by transacting on the black market. Right. And it wasn't I read in the book. It was illegal, but it wasn't shameful. That was the only way you could have any type of life Uh, when they got passports to leave Romania. They weren't able to take anything out of the country, right? But they said they had saved up $1,000 worth of Romanian money and 4000 American dollars. They had friends who were jailed, tortured, or even killed for just having money. But my grandparents had a lot of chutzpah. You know, they said, we need to get this money out. And, you know, this is not a spoiler from the book. They got every cent of their money out, both the Romanian money and the American money. Uh, the Romanian money is also a great story. We won't touch on that one here, but folks, can read the book to learn that one. It is truly incredible. But the American dollars, which were there were more of them and it was more dangerous. My grandparents were thinking, how can we possibly get this money out? Even if they knew we had this money, the communists, we'd be in deep trouble. And my grandma said, well, she had this idea. She had a cousin who was also a Holocaust survivor who was a production assistant on a movie set in Hungary in Budapest. The movie's biggest star was Buddy Hackett, a Jew from Brooklyn. And so my grandparents said, well, if we can have our cousin ask Buddy Hackett if he take our money back, and if we can get the money to him, maybe it'll work. <laughs> and uh, My cousin, who's still alive in Budapest, you know, I interviewed him for the book. Uh, he asked Buddy Hackett, hey, would you help my, my family? They're Holocaust survivors. They need help. And he didn't hesitate. He said, if you can get the money from Romania to Hungary, I'll take it out. No problem. And so how they transported, as you know, from the book is a whole different story. My grandmother had to sew a false bottom into a suitcase. They had to transport it. It was very dangerous. But as soon as it hit Buddy Hackett's hands, it's no longer illegal. And he Took it back to the United States. He sent it to my great uncle in the Bronx with an extra fifty dollars on top, right? And today's money that's well over a thousand dollars. So think about how generous that is. And there was just a simple note and it said, Good luck in America, sincerely, buddy hackett. And that's the money that my family used to start their new life in America. What
1: a match. And that kind of proves what I was saying about our Jewish family. And they trusted them and they were right to put that trust. Had that story ever been told before your book? I mean, probably within your family, but I,
6: I, I, I grew up, I would heard my grandmother say, tell it so many times, but it wasn't known publicly. And actually, as you know, from the book, the, the, the nice kind of bow that's tied on that story is 20 years later, once my grandparents had made good in America, my dad was this big basketball star, my grandparents vacationed in Las Vegas like you did with your family. And they saw Buddy Hackett perform. And my grandmother told this story at the dinner table after the show. And one of her friends excused himself from the table talked his way into Buddy Hackett's hotel suite and told him, those Holocaust survivors you helped in Romania and Hungary, they're here. And he said, bring them up. And so my grandpa, they had never met. My grandparents spent the evening with Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett knew with my dad, right? Because my dad's a big basketball star. He's wearing number 18 for the Knicks. you know. So it kind of really comes full circle.
1: Oh, my goodness. Now, your book is relatively new. When did it get published? Within the year, right?
6: It came out the end of November 2021. So, yes, it's relatively new.
1: Have you heard from anybody in the Hackett family?
6: I haven't. I've actually, you know, I've been, of course, running very fast, you know, talking about the story, but I've I've done a little research. I would love to get in touch and just just to tell them what an act of kindness. Right. You know, the, the Buddy Hackett story in the book, it's very entertaining. It's memorable. But it also really connects to this really important core theme of human kindness. You know, you know, when my grandmother was surviving the Holocaust, there was a, a soldier that gave her an extra piece of bread. Someone gave her a pair of pants to keep her warm. Someone gave her a kiss on the cheek. There are all these small acts of kindness that kept her going. What Buddy Hackett did for my family was the, was the biggest example, you know, it was, and, it, and we all need help at, at some point in time. And so for him, to deliver that help when he was the last person who needed to, right? This is a famous world, famous comedian. And so it's not only an incredible story that's really entertaining to read, but it means a lot. And so he means a lot to our family. I would love to connect with his family.
1: There is a Colorado connection. My point guard's involved. I'm sure he can give me an assist. I know he can.
6: There you go. (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. We'll connect afterwards. I would love that.
1: It's going to happen. You know, it, it brings us back to that Ray Allen introduction. And we don't want to give away too much of the book because the way that Anu and the rest of your family who survived made it, it's miraculous. And then they had to put up with the commies, the Russians, trying to steal all their money, won't let them out, that sort of crap. And it comes down to bigotry against the Jewish people. And Ray Allen had the uh, wisdom to realize when he saw Schindler's List, it's the same story against the other, right? Be it the black person, the Jewish person, somebody who's different. And that's a big part of your book. And everybody in America, at least, I, I'm wrestling with it. I, I'm convinced that our, our last president conspired with the white supremacist gang to commit a violent coup and insurrection, I'm just blown away by that, and the realization that other people don't want to hold them responsible for that. So I've never been more worried about bigotry in America. I know you think about it. What are your thoughts, and why is your book important to read to gain context on this ever-present issue?
6: Yeah, listen, I think we certainly live in troubling times when you see what's going on in the world, and certainly in America... How we treat each other, how we think about you know uh, togetherness and, and the lack of togetherness in our country, and just the, the like you said the bigotry, the injustice, the intolerance, the racism, all the anti-Semitism, right? There's all these acts of of violence have been going up over over the years, and as you said, of course the the political situation has contributed to all that. Very troubling, very worrying. I think that my book. It, it tells a very pertinent and current story, you know, about what's at stake when we don't treat each other fairly. And so you know and, and the concept of being different, being other, right? Of course, the Holocaust is an extreme example, communism, that brutality and and the things that happened there. and even my dad coming to America as an immigrant who didn't speak the language and you know being made fun of and not belonging, right? the sense of otherness of, of feeling like other. and no one likes that feeling, right? And so, and that's one beautiful thing about basketball. And as I said, my book is called By the Grace of the Game, right? The game of basketball, and you know this, right, because you played it, it brings people together. It doesn't care what language you speak, what color your skin is, what religion you are, where you come from. It just brings you together, right? And so I think there's a lot of darkness in the world, but there is more light. And so I think my book fits in because it, it tells that really important story of what's at stake and we're not treated fairly, but it also provides that hope and inspiration that... We can band together. We can get through these darker times.
1: Anti-Semitism is something that I read about. I did not experience a lot of it. Our high school team, when we were ranked number one in Colorado, we were four Jews, four whites, and four black guys. And yeah, there was some racial dissension at the end, but it wasn't anti-Semitism. I feel like I've led a charmed life until... More recently, when I when I see anti-Semitic incidents, and it's not just anti-Semitism, I feel so bad for the people in Ukraine right now. That part of the world, I bet that's on your mind too. It's not far from where your ancestors come from. Russia involved. I mean, can you believe this is, is happening in 2022?
6: It's heartbreaking. You know, there there are scenes on the news that could come straight from my book. As you know because i read about what happened to my my grandparents in the holocaust and yeah it's what's happening to the innocent people of ukraine right now it's it, yeah it's awful it's it weighs heavily on me and as it does to so many in our country all you know, we can use our voices to vote for the right type of people give our resources you know money support any way we can and it again it just shows that what's what's possible out there in the world and why it is always so important to stand stand against injustice and intolerance because you know innocent good people suffer you know during in situations like this. It's just it's it's terrible.
1: You know what was terrible my performance when I tried out for the Maccabea team in Chicago. I was already <laughs> in my thirties. I didn't make the team, but you were a superstar. You made the team and you and your family with Maccabees success and then when you were last cut of the next because of your knee injury, you made a great career in Spain, Germany, and Israel. My God, you were a hero in the professional ranks in Israel. And I, I, I only know you really th- from your book. I followed your career a little when you were at Stanford, but I, I would say you were not an observant Jew. But then, toward the end of the book, I hope I'm not giving it away. All of a sudden you're more orthodox and you're making Aliyah. Are you living in, you're talking to me right now, from where are you, in Israel, America? Where are you?
6: I'm in the States. I'm on the East Coast currently. Uh, and listen, I think I never became an orthodox Jew or anything like that. But, and I was I always felt connected to my heritage. You're right. I was never the most observant Jew growing up. I would argue I'm not today either. But I'm certainly more observant. You know, I fast on Yom Kippur. I wear a Star David. Like, it, I think being in Israel, playing there, connecting with my roots, connecting with the Jewish homeland, that all had a pretty profound uh, impact on me. I'm proud of who I am and where I come from. And you know, while I might not, you know, I'm not, I'm not as religious as many others. It definitely means a lot to me, and I, I do observe in the ways that feel that feel right for me.
1: And bring me up to date. When last I read about you, you got married. Do you have a family? What's going on there?
6: Yeah, married. I have two kids. I have a three-year-old and a three-month-old. So my wife and I welcomed another baby not long ago. So we're in the throes of of that, right? Which is, it's it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's very tiring, of course, all right? Because babies are a lot of work. But uh, yeah, we have two beautiful boys and uh, I'm very, very lucky.
1: Mazel tov. What do they call Grandpa Arnie? Papa. <laughs> and has Anya been able to see them?
6: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. She Anya hasn't met our youngest yet, but uh, she knows our, our oldest very well, and we FaceTime with her every day. So while she hasn't held, you know, our youngest, she's seen him every day of his life pretty much, and uh, she always, you know, she's in love with him already, even from afar. So it's that's really special.
1: Now, I never got to play for a big program like Stanford, but down in CNC, I would tell my parents, please get there real early because I don't want to have to worry about you on I 25. Did you tell your family, get there early? On you, always with grade seats at the Stanford games, et cetera. But didn't you kind of worry until they got there? And with a big crowd, did you always know where your dad was and where your grandma was?
6: Yeah. I, and, you know, my grandma came to every single home game I played at Stanford. She's she's never late. <laughs> That's one thing about audio. You, know, you know, you probably got that from the book, her level of discipline. Yeah, she's never late. So I always checked. Right. My eyes were always fixed. I knew exactly where she sat. You know, Everyone in the building knew her. The usher, So she, and they escorted her to her seat. So I always checked just to make sure she was there. But I, I don't remember one time when I worried she was always there early. I didn't even have to tell her she was always there. You know, by the time we'd come out and we're warming up, Anya was in her seat ready.
1: How is your dad?
6: Yeah, he's doing really well. You know, he spent 42 straight years with an NBA team. So after, you know, being this kid who comes to America, you know, loses his brother, deals with all his adversity, doesn't fit in, is made fun of, you know, becomes his basketball star, ends up spending 42 straight years with an NBA franchise as player, broadcaster, coach, executive, right? So really a storybook career he he left the Washington Wizards in 2019. And so, you know, he's been still involved with basketball. You know, people call him from time to time. He helps out with things here and there. But you know, he's just really enjoying being a grandfather. And he's deserved it. You know, after all he's been through, after all he's accomplished, he deserves it.
1: Does he still have a mustache?
6: Absolutely. Me you got too. It.
1: <laughs> but I'm thinking about yeah. shaving it. Does he ever shave it? Have you ever seen him without it?
6: When we were, my sister and I were young, she was probably 11 and I was eight years old. We went to the beach for a vacation during the summer and we kind of said, you know, dad, why don't you just shave your mustache? And he did it. So when we were little, there was like, he shaved his mustache and uh, that was the only time. And, it, you know, it grew back quickly. And, you know, I read about his mustache in the book. It's like, it's mythical. You know, like All my friends, even my dad's mustache has has its own persona. It's, it's so thick. It's like the Tom Selleck mustache, you know? So. He has this really amazing mustache. It grew back very quick, but we—he did shave it one time for us.
1: You got to watch that Ernie and Bernie ESPN special because your dad—he was a chick magnet then. What they stole his picture and they found <laughs> it in the sorority house—that's pretty cool. <laughs>
6: yeah, they—they they, right, they talk about that in in the uh, documentary, and you know, he was larger than life. He he came from New York. You know, he was a year older than Bernard, and. He was this great player. He was very well liked in campus. And they said they had these cutouts of the players, the Tennessee players. And my dads would all, and they, you know, kept him on maybe it was on at the stadium where they just kept him around campus and my dads would always be missing and you know, people from the sorority house would take his cutout and put it there. So it kind of painted him as, yeah, this big man on campus phenomenal, which he was. You know, basketball did that for him. He he was a beloved player and figure on campus.
1: Wow. Well, You've been so generous with your time. You've got roots in all over America. I can't let you go without talking about the champions. They took out the Nuggets. We were not at full strength. But when we saw that they kept Jokic under control, we knew Golden State was going to win the championship. But Steph Curry, there's a guy who's overcome injuries. And we talked about Ray Allen, and he just broke Ray Allen's records. Isn't he something, Steph Curry? And you probably know him. He seems like a great guy.
6: Incredible. I, I do. I've been around him and interacted with him on several occasions. Great, incredible player, right? And he's changed the game with you know, his shooting ability and just the joy with which he plays, right? That's what I love so much about him. Not only is he an incredible player, but he makes those around him better. And he kind of facilitates his spirit, which is really admirable. Uh, and then he's a ph- phenomenal person and teammate, human being. I think the culture in Golden State is really good because it trickles down from him, right? His approach. And he's lighthearted, but he's competitive. And he's, he's everything you'd want a superstar to be off the court uh, as a human. And then, yeah, his game is just, you know, we, we really haven't seen anything like that. His shooting ability. And he's, he's, that's why he's been you know the MVP of the NBA, four-time champion. He's amazing. Someone I really, really admire.
1: Well, your book is super. I hope it's going to be made into a movie. Any possibility of that?
6: Yeah, I've had conversations. You know, many people have said that. I've had you know people from the industry have reached out, and so I don't know where those conversations are going to go. I hope they go to the big screen, right? Because for me, you know, my dream is just to share this message as broadly as I can, right? It's it's just such an important story to me about my grandparents' survival, my dad's survival, my dad's perseverance, and my own journey, and it's very relatable. We all, you know, we all go through things in our lives. And so I think that it can really provide a lot of hope and inspiration for people. So my fingers are crossed that that we see it on the big screen one of these days.
1: It's an important story for me. And again, maybe that's that extended Jewish family. I feel wrapped up in the embrace of your book. And it's an optimistic book. It's not a downer because of Anywhere, who is this star. And her spirit is just unbreakable. I'm so glad she's still doing well. But I I just like to leave with this Dan, since you're so smart. The world seems a little tumultuous right now. Where are we going, and what can we do to steer it in the right direction?
6: Uh, so just an easy little uh, softball yes, yes, question yes. to leave on, and yeah, just, and take sure.
1: all the time you need.
6: Yeah, listen. Where are we going? No one knows, myself included. But I think i and I think my story is kind of part of this. Because I always learned this from my family, be the good you want to see in the world right so so when you say, what can we do? you know you can model the behavior for your kids, for your communities you know the the kindness, the acceptance, the you know the sense of community right all the things that make life beautiful, we as human beings have the ability to to model that type of behavior every day, and you know, like I said, use your vote, use your resources and speak up i think that's that's a big part of it right because my grandma always says there was a point in time where we still need voices right but there was a point in time in the 30s when things were happening where as jews we really needed voices we needed people to stand up and there weren't enough voices and we saw what happened so i think today no one can say where the world is going there are really troublesome winds blowing in every direction you know we saw you know our ruling you know last week which was, you know, so heartbreaking to see, you know, women lose access to the type of reproductive health care they need, right? There are so many things happening in our world that are heartbreaking. Who knows where it's going to go? I think we need to be very active and outspoken to, to kind of, you know, try to, again, model the behavior and model the values you want to see in the world.
1: That's what this podcast is all about. Love that answer, Dan Grunfeld. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. And, uh, Good luck in all your future adventures, especially fatherhood.
6: There you go. Thanks, Craig. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
6: Thanks. Bye.
1: Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey?
3: what you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog and it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, You can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals.
1: How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer.
3: So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me.
1: Hello. Rachel Gunders, it's Craig
5: Hi, Craig. How are you?
1: Did you know that even before I said it?
5: Oh, I, I could have guessed from a voice.
1: Isn't that something? Who else would have it? Your dad and I were just talking about voices because I I love it, your dad's voice, and I think I like yours even better. Thanks for doing the podcast. Your dad's right here. Do you want to say hello?
5: Yeah. Hi, Dad. How are you, Ray? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. That's so nice of you.
1: You know he has a special title on our show, and it happens to be our second anniversary. We launched with a beautiful song called Fourth of July. He has a tremendous backup singer. We're going to find out who that is, but his (laughs) title here is Troubadour. Do you think it's fitting?
5: I think it's so fitting. I always hear you calling him that on your walks.
1: But he fancies himself a troubadour. He even has that in some of his songs. And then his latest album, the whole album was called Troubadour.
5: I know. And he's, he's coming out with a new one soon. So you'll have more songs to play on your podcasts.
1: I am so excited for that. But the 4th <laughs> of July only comes around once a year. And honestly, I try to rank your father's songs, but this
5: might be number one. Thank you. I'm so glad that I'm, I'm part of your favorite one. This is one of my favorites, too. I feel like it's just, it's it was one of my favorites to sing.
1: Before we talk about the song, let's talk about you, Rachel Gunders. Who are you? Where did you grow up? And what do you consider your hometown now?
5: Well, I would say I still consider Denver my hometown, um, although New York is starting to feel more like home. Um, I moved here almost exactly a year ago, actually, right on July 4th last year. Um, So I love it here and I'm doing investment banking and it's just a different lifestyle. It's much busier, but I really, it's a great place to be in your 20s.
1: It is impolite to ask a woman her age, but you are so youthful. How old are you now, Rachel? (laughs)
5: I'm 22, almost 23.
1: Did you have a chance to watch Cassidy Hutchinson, who's in her mid-20s, testify before the Joint Select Committee, January sixth today,
5: I did read um about it, and it's pretty it's pretty shocking to hear some of the things she had to say.
1: Oh, watch her tonight. Anyway, I'm so honored that you are doing this. We're doing this a little in advance because your daddy's coming out to visit you, and we want to know seriously about your father. What have I known him for about 10 years now? But you've known him a long time. Just tell me, what's he really like?
5: Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Honestly, just such a good dad, always so present and involved in my life. Um, I just have had, I've been super lucky to have him in my life and my mom and just really great parents. I don't think we've talked about how I don't think I'd be who I am at all without either of them like I feel like I'm a really good balance of both of their personalities
1: I know he's a great dad but present all the time I mean the guy can't stand still I think that's even one of the lines in 4th of July
5: that is true no he's always he's always doing things and he's always busy and doing his music but I feel like whenever I needed something he was always around and he would always drop anything else that he was working on to be there for me
1: I know it I think he gets that from his father what I love, my dad's gone, but I loved him so much. And I have never seen a son love a father more than your father loves Henry Gunders. I bet you love Henry Gunders too.
5: He. I'm also so lucky to have the best grandpa. Like I call him for advice all the time. And he honestly, like he's 98 almost. His birthday's in two days. And like, his advice never gets old. It's just he has the best wisdom that will definitely last me a lifetime.
1: He's a great guy, and he was featured on one of our podcasts. I forget the episode, but I'll put that in the show notes. Now, this song, Fourth of July, do you remember how it came to your attention? And is it you already said it's one of your favorites, but how does your dad get you to work on a song as opposed to Sarah? Is it a form of uh, indentured servitude? I mean, does he pay you anything?
5: (laughs) No, he doesn't. Well, we both have sang on different songs. I'm not really sure how he picks. I think it's kind of, sometimes he'll kind of give me a preview of his album, and then if there's a song that I particularly like, um, he'll let me sing on it. Um, And I think he also kind of has an ear for what will sound better on my voice versus my sister's. Not that I'm much of a singer or anything, but... Um, I do. I really like singing on his songs, and it's nice to listen back to when I was in elementary school to the old, like how my voice has changed over the years, and it's just so many good memories.
1: Oh boy, the evidence will contradict you. Your voice is like an angel on this song. How old were you when you sang this?
5: I think I was. I actually think I was a sophomore in high school, so I was I was younger, but I had matured enough. You can hear it in my voice um, versus some of the older albums.
1: I always loved the 4th of July. I like fireworks. What about you?
5: I love fireworks. I'm so excited to hopefully see some on the 4th of July. Last year, we got to we were in Connecticut again, and I got to see some over Long Island Sound. So I'm hoping we'll get to do that again.
1: Did your dad have fireworks for the Gunders family home growing up? I, I think the statute I, of limitations has passed. I'm his lawyer, so I have to think about this for a minute. Yeah, it's municipal. Yeah, he's okay. Go ahead.
5: I think, I actually think I remember one year you brought over fireworks oh, to our oh, house. No, right? don't
1: get me into this. That's <laughs> uh, All right. So, you know, there's a lot to this song, more than just the holiday. It's the concept of freedom. And we're going to talk about that, Rachel, because you are so bright and. You know, I have my perspectives on the Dobbs opinion, limiting women's rights to choose, but I'm not a woman. That's why I called you. Uh, But the song, don't you think it should be an anthem for people who believe in reproductive choice? Do you see how it fits?
5: Yeah, definitely. I think it has a lot to do with freedom and the fact that that's been restricted um, is, is, I think, really devastating to a lot of women my age and men as well.
1: Yeah, no kidding. I mean, men, their lives are going to be impacted greatly, but not as much as women. And tell us what your thoughts are on this week. The news comes and goes so fast last Friday. A right that your mother enjoyed and probably your grandmother too. I I mean, it's been 50 years. I remember before Roe v. Wade, but... just your thoughts, Rachel Gunders. What are you thinking?
5: Yeah, I think it was just really shocking um, because it's been something I've always grown up hearing about as like such a major turning point in kind of the women's rights movement. And I actually took a class in college that was focused on, it was called Sexuality, Gender, and the Law. Um, so it was all about, you know, the Supreme Court and how they've kind of determined these precedents and all of that. Um, and like, It was just the biggest one that we always talked about, and it's just, it it feels so wrong to have it be overturned. It feels like people are kind of, people on the court are prioritizing their own personal views over, like, legal precedent, um, which is honestly very concerning to me, and I think, you know, it's not just the actual decision itself, but how it could impact future decisions that is the scariest
1: for me. Wow, that is so wise. You could have been a great lawyer, but stay with investment banking. I think it's it's better in the long run. But I love the law, and I look at it as a lawyer, and I'm really sad because the U.S. Supreme Court should be respected, but they're putting their morality on the rest of us. I know their arguments uh, in a different direction, but... We can't have a country based on interpretations of what the founding fathers felt way back when, before there was birth control, before there was uh, firearms. I mean, what about this gun ruling? It impacts New York City. That's the name of the case. That's where you are living. And I always liked the fact that there were few guns in Manhattan. It made me feel safer. How are you feeling as a resident of the Big Apple right now?
5: Yeah, that's another decision that's just very upsetting um, to me. The fact that gun rights seem to be kind of prioritized over women's rights. Um, I think, you know, I've told my parents it, living in New York, I don't think there's a day that goes by where I don't think about the potential of someone having a gun around me, especially on um, like public transportation. I don't feel particularly safe. And I think now it just increases my concern. I just... I don't think there's a reason for people in New York to be holding concealed weapons. I think gun control is so important. And if we're really pro life, then we should look out for people who are at risk of being shot in public settings that we should never have to worry about our safety. Um, so, just also another upsetting, upsetting thing.
1: It is upsetting and it's really the fault of the baby boomers. And I blame your father. I really do, because he's a baby boomer, a little toward the World War II end of it. But what about your generation? Can you get out of it? Is your generation better? Will young women mobilize to throw the bums out? What do you think is going to happen?
5: I don't know. I think I think my perception is is probably pretty skewed. Like, I like to believe that my generation is different and that we are more progressive on these sorts of things. But I also, you know, grew up in a pretty progressive area and I'm now living in New York City. So I, I definitely think there's there's people my age who are raised by parents who kind of pass along opposing beliefs. But, um, you know, the people who I surround with, myself with definitely are in agreement that these things are just rights and we should have a right to safety and a right to choose. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that it can change.
1: Is there any activism? Some women and men are organizing in Colorado to finance or actually staff mobile clinics on the borders with Kansas, Oklahoma, Utah, Wyoming nebraska so that women can just come over the border and get a pill or a service i i mean it's a darn shame and here we are in colorado surrounded new york is on the eastern seaboard where abortion rights exist but we're becoming so divided and it's hard to even talk about things in the workplace i feel so bad about that happening What? what are your thoughts on that, Rachel? You're living in the world, and and I, I just feel bad that w- there are so many challenges for you guys.
5: Yeah, I, I agree. I think my generation's biggest challenge is kind of how polarized we are. I think people have really strong opinions um, on kind of both sides of the political spectrum. And so it's hard, like it would be hard for me to have a conversation with someone who is very far right. On um, especially social topics um, I think you know something we can improve on is trying to have more moderate views and listening to each other so we can at least reach compromises I think that's kind of the biggest hope of moving forward and creating change and just a less
4: you politically- are,
1: yeah you are so impressive Rachel Gunders I'm going to let your father who's felling over here he's so proud of you what do you have to say troubadour
7: Ray, I've been proud of you since day one, and, uh, and, and and I I and it does make me proud to hear you know you're how thoughtful you know you've you you've thought about these things and and uh, you're articulate. And I really you know I appreciate having you as my daughter, and and uh, anytime I need advice, I'm going to you.
1: Can I try out a couple arguments on you, Rachel? Because yes. I have to write a column, and I want to make sure this makes sense to. A smart female. Now, you took science classes, didn't you? Yes. How far did you get with science? Chemistry?
5: Yeah, I took I took some chemistry in high school.
1: Biology? Yes. So you know what a Petri dish is, right? Yeah. And do you understand in vitro fertilization at all?
5: On a very high level, not super detailed. Well, they put
1: it on a high shelf in a freezer because they have to freeze a bunch of them To get one that works, right? And say that facility is near me and there's a big fire and I'm pretty tall. I could reach the top shelf and rescue 24 Petri dishes or I could rescue a security guard who's overwhelmed by the smoke. And uh, which should I go after first?
5: Sorry, could you just cut out? No, no, that's all right.
1: I'll finish my own, which is that I, I would save the security guard. You know what I mean? It's petri oh, dishes yeah. are fine, full of zygotes, but that's my good common sense. And frankly, if there were a couple of dogs there that were alive and barking and about to be consumed by the fire, I'd probably save the existing dogs because they are existing as opposed to possible life. And then other people say, well, when they show you a picture of a sonogram, well, look at my baby right? Well, okay. That doesn't mean it's a baby yet. It's, it's a developing fetus. At the same time, if women have miscarriages and it happens, you don't talk about pregnancies early. And the reason is uh, just because it naturally occurs that it doesn't take hold. And when you're asked later, well, how many kids do you have? I expect your mother would say, too, you and and Sarah. I don't know if she had a miscarriage, but most women don't count a miscarriage. You know what I mean? So there are all these arguments, but I bet you've thought it through, haven't you?
5: Yeah, I definitely agree with that argument. And I think I have a similar perspective is that I don't view a fetus as, you know, I don't view abortion as murder. I don't don't perceive it that way. Um, I try to... Look at the other perspective, especially from a religious point of view, and I can, I can start to at least understand part of the argument. Um, but I just feel like there's so many inconsistencies in the current Republican Party's view on all these social issues that don't line up. Like as you said, if if you really care about lives so much, then why isn't gun control such a high priority to them? So um, I definitely agree with your argument
1: gosh, you are wise. Not just because you agree with me, but if somebody (laughs) argues to you that gospel, I think it's in one of the Testaments, that God knew you before you were even anything. Well, if you believe that, that from the moment you're a zygote, you belong to God, I mean, how are we going to argue about that? But I, I don't remember being a zygote, and it seems to me that you're not really a human being, until you have a functioning brain which distinguishes human life versus plant life or anything like that. So I, uh, I, I just have to uh, advance these arguments, and I'm glad they're not silly or non-substantive to you. I, I just yeah, don't no. know how this ends, and we have such a poor system because these justices were appointed by Trump who is like the emperor with no clothes now, he's so corrupt, he will, I predict he'll be indicted for seditious conspiracy. He got these three selections, and it changed your world for the foreseeable future. And I don't think that's right, Rachel. And I think there's going to be a lot of social upheaval over it. Um, How do you see the future?
5: I agree. There there definitely has been a lot of social upheaval in New York, especially like this past weekend. There were huge protests um, kind of mixed in with its Pride Month as well. So it was kind of mixed in. And I think it kind of became everyone rooting for the same thing. But if you look pic- at pictures online and on Twitter, you can see how many thousands of people showed up um, because I think people are so passionate about this topic. Um, yeah, I, I just think people should keep Fighting it and protesting it, I, it made me proud and happy to see so many people show up for this.
1: And that's sort of the theme of Fourth of July. Dave Gunner's the author. It's about keeping moving, and just like your attitude there, you're getting active. You're going to keep moving. We have no choice. We need to advance as a society. You know, there's a lot of racism and anti-Semitism on the other side too, and I think. A hundred years ago in Colorado, my grandfather and the Klan dominated in Denver and Colorado politics for about five years, and then it burned out. And I'm hoping that Trumpism is like that. Maybe it's gone a lot further, but that's my hope for you in the future. And Rachel, I can't thank you enough for this interview. And I think I'm really depriving people by delaying the start of the 4th of July. The beautiful voice you hear in the background, that's Rachel Gunders. Troubadour, you sing beautiful too. Just talk about this song, 4th of July, and what it means to you.
7: 4th of July, it's its about freedom. It's about our great country that I love, um, but it's about personal freedom as well. And uh, it was somewhat autobiographical in, in in the sense that you know I loved I love to be moving I love to move through uh, to see this country I love through to be turmoil mo- because that song
1: starts with something went wrong in your life
7: right right it starts off there's a relationship where he wants to, to make make a change to kind of revitalize the relationship um, and they're going to go and do a road trip so yeah it's about motion moving forward love of country, love of the, nat- of the natural beauty of this country, everything that I think um, that came into play.
1: Right, but think about it as an abortion song, reproductive choice. All of my life, there's never been a question. There's never been a question about a woman's right in most modern women's lifetime. It's right. been almost 50 years, and now you're searching for the answer. And right,
7: you've memorized the lyrics. Uh, you know why <laughs> I think
1: that the Trump tide has turned? You know why? because you actually watched Cassidy Hutchinson today you paid attention and uh, that doesn't happen mr. oblivious and
7: <laughs> tell us
1: what you thought you're What's talking it? about
7: the low bar actually but,
1: per- but why did you pay attention today and was, what did you
7: think well I heard I heard this young woman testifying um, mostly to the facts of um, being at these um, in these conversations um, where you know Trump's uh, what, it was a chief, the uh, chief. Yeah, of, she
1: was the top aide for Mark Meadows, she was the aide, chief of staff, Right,
7: where Mark Meadows was basically looking at his phone, ignoring things. And, uh, and she
1: and, said, wait, I, Rudy I, just I, told me there's going to be violence at the Capitol. Right. And uh, what's up? Well, and then he had.
7: Their, their heads were in the sand. Uh, it was it was very compelling testimony.
1: But when Barr said, hey, there was no election rigging. Did you hear about this, Rachel, what he did? He, I don't think he, so. he threw his lunch against the wall, and there was ketchup oh, yeah. spattered all over. And a lot of people think it was a burger, but this guy puts ketchup on his steak, and I make him ordering a filet mignon every day to take advantage of us. And I bet after he threw his lunch, he ordered another one. And he, we have to pay for somebody to clean that up. This is that kind of guy. And he heard about the Hang my Pence And he liked it, and she was right there to hear it. And she took the call from Jim Jordan. She nails him in every way possible. And she's just like you, Rachel Gunders. She's just a nice woman, smart, in her 20s, accomplished. And for a while there, Tim Trump was paying for a lawyer and keeping a lid on her, but finally she broke free, hired a new lawyer, I don't know, a week or two ago, and that's what's caused this ruckus. And now the rats will come running, and if your dad's paying attention, then the end is near for Donald Trump. (laughs) I'm just telling you, I know these things. Rachel, is this your first podcast? This is my first podcast. I'm so honored that it's yours. Well, it's not just mine. It's our two-year anniversary, and I've not had one episode without... Your father, our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Let's give a listen to Dave Gunders and Rachel Gunders with a sensational song for our special 4th of July show. It's called 4th of July. Enjoy
8: That walk, something missing, just don't pay. Take the grind another day, cause you're too beautiful. And a new life's calling. Heading north, highway one, to our left, setting sun, Pacific shining far below. Out in front, this is the open road. Not thinking at all where we're going. All my life, it's never been a question. Can't stand in line searching for the answer. The freedom song, that's the one I turned to. It's the right place, the right time. It's the Fourth of July. Some folks don't mind staying still Measure days in time to kill But it's a crime, baby, wouldn't you say but Tomorrow feels just like today And that ain't no place we're going All my life, never been a question I won't stand in line, got to be in motion it all. Willing to try on the Fourth of July. So ride, ride, hold on tight, catch the wind, taking flight. Ready now to start new, doing what we're born great land big dreams awaken all my life never been a question can't stand in line searching for the answer freedom song that's the one I turn to when I'm restless give me wings to fly it's 4th of July They're Calling Independence Day It's the 4th of July Nothing gonna slip away On the 4th of July Away. Fourth of July.
4: Don't step by.
1: Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
3: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
3: Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720 394 6887. And again, that's 720 394 6887. Or you can go online to Michael Bailey Law com, And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is
6: fine.
1: Thanks, Michael. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims, as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims.
0: Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. My
1: man. Hey, welcome back to the lounge. (laughs) Thank you. For everybody who doesn't remember his stellar appearance on a prior episode, this is Chip Evans, hotshot Texas lawyer. Okay, brag a little bit about your practice and your recent big
0: successes. Um, I've been very fortunate in my uh, law practice, Craig. I've been very fortunate to meet people like you and work with some very, very fine lawyers and you hang around long enough and and good things happen to you. I live by the same credo that you do and that is to make sure that you remember that your client is the boss and that's the only person that you have to satisfy, not a court, not a uh, opposing counsel, not a mediator, but your client. And as long as you, you do that, Um, you're going to be fine. That was instilled upon me or into me by my father-in-law, who was my law partner for 10 years. I learned more from him than I learned from just about anybody else on this planet. Guy Fisher, who I think you know as well, Craig.
1: I do. um,
0: My gosh, what what a
1: legendary lawyer.
0: And and now uh, Guy spends a lot of his time up in your neck of the woods in Divide, Colorado. I practice only personal injury law. That's all I've done for 25 years, and you know I've just been real fortunate, Craig. The by doing a good job for people, they they come back to me, and we're still here, even though they try to put us out of business in Texas all the time.
1: Right, and when you say here, I believe you're right in the heart of Texas, right in the state capital, the city yes, of Austin.
0: Yes, sir, Austin, Texas. That's exactly right. That's where we've been. My my practice is sort of statewide. Probably half of it is um, in Austin and the surrounding areas. Counties are a little smaller here maybe than y'all's are up there. We have 256 of them here in Texas, and, uh, and so they're, a little, they're not too hard to get from one county to the next. But um, about half my practice is in Central Texas, Austin, and then the rest of it is uh, spread throughout the state with a fair concentration of that being in San Antonio, a town I love.
1: Right. That's a city in the news right now. I mean, my God, what happened with that box car full of immigrants? And how hot Uh, was it uh, the other day in San Antonio?
0: It's been um, over 100. uh, I think it seems like 25 of the 28 days or 22, at at least 22 of the 28 days uh, this month and San Antonio is mm-hmm. about 100 miles south or 75 miles south of Austin. So it's even a little warmer down mm-hmm. there. And it uh, I can't imagine what those people went through. It shows you the the desperation that they must be facing to put themselves through that when most of us can't ride in a car for 10 minutes mm-hmm. without an air conditioning down here in Texas. So a really sad situation. And I, I'm really disappointed to see it politicized. But such is the world these days. Right. Right.
1: Oh, my God, the scenes we are seeing on our television, but right there in Texas, we've had it happen in Colorado. Not the first time in Texas either, but my God, Rob Elementary School, Uvalde, Texas, it just takes your breath away. My goodness. I mean, how does it feel as a native Texan to go through that?
0: You know, it's it's a little bit... Um... A lot, of, a lot of emotions on that, and obviously I'm not trying to compare my experience to the people who live in Uvalde and who have gone through that um, firsthand. I've been to Uvalde many times. It's in an area that I like to go fishing and dove hunting in, and it, it's a very nice community and very nice people, and they have good barbecue and good Mexican food, and that will always keep me coming back, and they're they're just really nice people. When I heard about that, Craig, uh, in an ironic sort of thing i my son and i like to go fishing in mexico a lot and my father-in-law who again i have the utmost respect for he doesn't like us to do that he he thinks it's a little bit dangerous and when i received the news in uvalde of the uvalde shooting and, and uh, of the tragedy there i was actually in mexico fishing and i, I actually thought to myself I'm actually safer down here in this fishing lodge than I am in in an elementary school or a grocery store in Texas. It's just absurd, man. It's just absurd.
1: It seems absurd to me in Texas politics. I went to Austin one time and I I got to be near Beto O'Rourke and Willie Nelson. You weren't in town at the time, but we've gotten together here in Colorado and we'll get together a lot, but... What's going on in Texas with state GOP talking about secession, not recognizing the election? Holy cow, that's discouraging to see that. What's up?
0: So, you know, I have some um, friends that are Republican through and through. And one of the ways I can tell if they're crazy Republicans or as I call them, country club Republicans, is I asked them about statements like that. I asked them about statements that were made in the platform, Craig, as you pointed out, but I think the listeners need to understand, this was the GOP, the Republican Party State Convention in Houston, where they decided what they were going to be all about. The party, not some fringe group, not the MAGA people. This is the official party of Texas. And they decided that they wanted to have a referendum Number one, on uh, if Texas should secede or not, I don't think they have any concept of what that actually means. And number two, um, they decided that they would not recognize that the 2020 election was legitimate or valid or whatever. And I guess losing 70 lawsuits, I think you probably know the number better than I do, but I'm sure 60, just 60, just 60, losing 60 lawsuits, right. five dozen lawsuits that say, you have no evidence that this was a stolen election. You have no evidence that this was anything but an illegitimate election. Frankly, Craig, I think that just makes you look stupid. I don't know. I mean, that that's like, you know, I think if Joe Biden said the sun comes up in the East, the Republican Party in Texas would pass a, a platform that said it actually rises in the West. And they would believe that.
1: If they seemed stupid before, how about after the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson an American hero, 25 or 26 years old. She had credibility. I've been doing this for decades, Chip, and I can evaluate witnesses. I think she was a home run. What did you think?
0: So I've seen bits and pieces of it, and I'll, I'm going to defer to you. What what I have seen, I was extremely impressed with. Um, I, I stopped short a little bit at the the heroic status of all these people that are coming in to testify because it's what they're supposed to do. We're supposed to unearth information and right wrongs in this country. And it seems like we sometimes tell people they're heroic for doing it. That being said, I know there's actual physical danger when you're dealing with the Trump people, but the, uh, um, I'm very impressed with the young lady and the testimony confirmed two things for me that I already thought, um, which is the whole thing is that the, Corrupt deal, just this, just this side, and maybe beyond. Organized crime, number one, and number two. Trump is a petulant child, and I knew that before mm-hmm. he was even the nominee. Before the he threw, treated-
1: he threw his lunch into the wall. Ketchup spattered everywhere, and that's the right what? term. It's not yeah. splatter; <laughs> it's spatter. No L
4: in there.
0: <laughs> and here, here's my question for you, and for the for the listeners out there, is what what. What did you miss when he, what, what did the Republican Party miss when he's on stage calling people Little Marco and Low yeah. Energy Jeb and Lion Ted? Why is nobody punching him in the face?
1: Why, mean, why? Why that, hasn't somebody reaction, kicked right? his ass a long time ago? That Secret Service guy, what a situation this is for a law school test. So I'm going to give it to you. There's a guy okay. named Bobby Engel. He's the driver of the Beast, he's with the Secret uh-huh. Service. Trump says we're going to the Capitol because this guy was going to go there and declare martial law and be like uh, some third world dictator. Giuliani cooked it up. But the guy wouldn't drive him there because it wasn't cleared. Plus, he knew everybody had weapons there. Trump said, yeah, those weapons aren't against me. Don't worry about it. He told them, forget about magnetometers. Just let the people come in. I need a big crowd and he really was gonna go there. So Bobby Engel, uh, was told by uh, Pat Cipollone, hey, don't do this. And the president said, let's go. And Engel said, no, sir, we're going to the West Wing. And the president, according to reports, said, I'm the fucking president. We're going to the Capitol. And then Bobby Engel said, no, sir, we're not. And then Trump lunged from the back, grabbed the steering wheel. And Bobby Engle took his other arm, grabbed Trump, threw it off. Trump plunged at him again, apparently hit him in the clavicle. But Bobby Engle went on his way back to the West Wing. Now, did he violate his oath? Was he supposed to do what the president told him to do? Or would that have been an unlawful order? And anybody else who put their hands on a Secret Service guy like that doing their job, I imagine, would be arrested for it, trying to take over the presidential vehicle. But what if it is the president? What if it is the protectee? Bottom line Please? is is <laughs> this guy is mad King Donald. It's all obvious now. And people who don't get it, I mean, well, I, well, anybody in the Texas GOP go, hmm, boy, I, I'm going to pretend that never happened. You know, I... I really like Ted Cruz better all along.
0: I don't follow them. I don't. I you know I don't really know even my Republican quote unquote friends that will vote for Cruz. I'm not sure anybody really likes Cruz. Let me go back to your, um, and I'm gonna come back to Cruz because I got something to say about him. But um, back to your high, law school hypothetical. I don't. I've never seen the oath that um, the Secret Service agent takes. I assume that the oath involves. If it's like most law enforcement oaths, it involves, above all, upholding the laws and the Constitution of the United States of America. And if Bobby Engle told Trump, we're not doing this because that was a violation of the laws and the Constitution of the United States of America, then Bobby Engle was well within his rights. On your second sort of point about, you know, did he commit assault on a Secret Service agent? Of course he did by the legal definition, but who fucking cares, right? right? The real, the real, the real question is if it had been anybody other than Donald Trump that had slapped Bobby slapped Bobby Engle in the chest, would they still be walking around today? And the answer to that is no. They would have, they would have had the ever loving shit beat out of them on the side of the road, right? Right. And that's something and we, that, we that we I, I'd like te- to and see. We cheered like, it on. We would have cheered it on.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't like to even talk about violence it's never the answer but if anybody ever deserved to take one just in the kisser to say you're a bully now back off right it's president trump and ted cruz i can't believe that guy didn't get punched a lot
0: well he probably did and that's probably why he's the bully he is now but you know cruz likes to do things like tweet out tweet out stuff about we we have a constant like battle with our energy grid here as to whether it's going to Hold or not. And that's well documented. And doesn't matter whether it's too cold or too hot. It always seems to be in peril. And Cruz, Cruz you know, he tweets out, Cruz was a big, one of the big proponents, or at least certainly on the train, of we're going to have our own grid. We're not going to be subject to federal regulation. We're not going to share. We're not going to participate in this, you know, globalist, whatever he called it, uh, energy cooperative with you the know rest of the United States.
1: You know what I take global globalist is code for? I'm
0: probably Jews. Not racist. Jews. Yeah. It could be. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's what yeah. I hear. A lot of people who say globalists are the left. I'm saying are you are yeah, you I'm talking sure about Jews? I I don't know. That's what I hear. And um global, and,
0: globalist to me is just someone who shares a sandbox, man. But anyway Cruz tweeted out all this stuff about... what well, Jews are payments
1: know, for sharing their sandbox. I know,
0: I right? know. Um, and anyway, the, Cruz have tweeted out all this stuff about, thanks to the Biden energy policies, Texans will be feeling it with their air conditioning and electric bills this, this summer. Well, that's bullshit, man. That's bullshit. The, we're not on the grid with everybody else. Our electricity comes from our resources in Texas, our dams, our wind. Our solar, we're on our own grid, and and the, the whole point of that was originally so that you know we wouldn't be beholden to all these we'd be beholding all these crazy Washington you know energy policies that everybody else is. And I just I'm real tired of that. I'm real tired of the dishonesty and just and the, the knowing dishonesty, and these these hearings just underscore it.
1: I have a song this week from our troubadour, Dave Gunders. It's called Fourth of July, where somebody encounters a problem and they got to move on. Okay, you've identified some problems in Texas. One, it's way too hot down there. Two, Mm -hmm. you got shitty politicians. Mm -hmm. And three, Colorado's just right up the road. And you haven't got a Colorado law license. So come on up here as much as possible. And that's what I love about you. You don't just sit on your ass counting your troubles. You say, what can I do to improve things for me and my family? And, you know, I've been trying to think about the same thing for me. Now, I'm not going to move to Texas, although. <laughs> but it's Independence Day, and I've told you I'm doing some moving. So, Counselor, I'll turn we it, I'll turn it
0: that. over yeah. to you. So, Craig, why don't we remind everybody just quickly, because I know you probably talk about a lot on your show, but. Remind me and remind everybody out there, kind of the the trajectory of your career, because it's quite impressive and it bears mentioning.
1: Oh boy, Denver boy, Denver public schools wanted to be a sports star. Didn't matter to me: basketball, baseball, golf. I tried to be proficient at them all. Played them all in high school. Did well academically. I was asked to play basketball at a school back east called Upsala College. It subsequently folded, but not for lack of trying, in small college basketball, where my coaches both ended up being NBA coaches. But alas, I realized I was more likely going to be a lawyer than a professional basketball player. Came back to Colorado College, and uh, I had a great time there playing ball. In fact, basketball, baseball, and golf. You can do all that in CC. Went to see you law school. Started as an intern in the Denver DA's office, spent 16 years there. And I handled some big ass cases, went into private practice after running for Denver DA against Bill Ritter, who went on to be governor. He was the incumbent Democrat DA at the time. I ran as an unaffiliated candidate. So when people talk about being independent and I label my podcast independent, I actually ran as an unaffiliated independent candidate saying, you know, politics and prosecution are a poor mix. And I think that's been borne out since 1996, but it was not a winning ticket for me. So I was launched into private practice, tried to be like Chip Evans, and through decades now, I've learned a lot about practicing law. And I love doing personal injury work because I like helping victims. I like helping people who've been hurt through no fault of their own. And sometimes that means people accused of crimes... But I like helping victims of crimes, and especially bad driving, drunk driving, uh, all of that stuff, people who hurt other people. I like to help people who've been hurt, and the law allows us to do that. Along the way, when I left the DA's office, Jean Benet got killed. The media asked for my opinion because I'd handled a lot of big cases. Jean Benet took off. We had Columbine. We had the Oklahoma City bombing trial. We had Kobe Bryant. I was called on for national and local commentary on all of that. That turned into uh, a media career that's lasted decades. Climaxing with this podcast talking to you right now. So there you go. And
0: I'll, I'll tell us that's a very good rendition. So I'll tell a story of how I met you. So one day I was sitting in my office. I was probably. Uh, gosh, I couldn't have been more than 27, 28 years old. And uh, I'm 50 now just to put it in context. And I. Uh, Guy calls me, and, and my assistant says there's a guy from Colorado, a lawyer from Colorado on the phone named Craig Silverman He was talking about a case, and I think you'd found me on the internet maybe and and for our listeners out there who are familiar with doing the internet on your phone, this was back in the time when you had to dial it up, like you you had to have a dedicated phone line for your. Your internet, it was a new thing. And and Craig found me on the internet and we got to talking and he had a case down here in Texas that he needed some help with. And so we started working on the case together. And then I went up to Colorado six or seven months later and I invited Craig to go play golf, not knowing about his illustrious golf career um, and all the athletic achievements. He had. And I, I play a decent game of golf. And so Craig on the first tee says, well, let's make this interesting. Uh, let's play for $10 a hole. And he talks to me, that son of a bitch talked me into playing 27 holes with him that day. And I think I was happy. I only lost about 120 dollars. No, so,
1: but it was so. your home course. I never seen it, but it was, it, my, my but it was beautiful. Garden of the gods. I, I still That's have where it. Was, yeah. Oh, that was beautiful.
0: That was fun. And was I haven't gotten anyway, I
1: haven't played that well since. I just wanted to let you know.
0: <laughs> we had a great time and have been friends ever since. So Craig, you want to talk about um What's your what's your latest career move is? What yeah. you new doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've talked to you about it because you're such a great PI lawyer, and I've told all my friends, and my friends, that includes my podcast audience, with this will air in July, and I'm starting Craig Silverman Law, and I'm leaving my former law firm because of some things that have to do with uh, MAGA world, and anyway. I don't want to be a part of MAGA world. That's part of my podcast. I think this big lie and the people who are part of it—they're ruining America, or trying to. You think I'm overreacting, or is that the way to go?
0: I, I think that I think that when you and I were talking about this a week or so ago, and you were expressing to me that not only do you not want to be a part of MAGA world, and not as a lawyer, you have to. You know, represent who your clients are, who your firm represents, and you're such a good lawyer, you don't necessarily want to be a part of that. That's the one thing. But the other thing I thought that was really stand up on your part, Craig, was that, you know, your bent or your feelings and, and what you do and what you've researched into MAGA World, as we'll call it, you can't stand for the big lie. And to be part of an organization that is defending people and they deserve the defense and God knows they need it, but they deserve the, the best defense they can get. But to have someone with your feelings at that firm might even present a conflict. And, I, and so I think that you stepping away from that is a really stand-up move and, and letting them go get the best defense because, like I said, they're going to need it. But you it also gives you an opportunity to kind of start your new thing. You want to talk about what you and I are talking about doing? Well...
1: I think we spread it out over a few weeks. Let's okay, figure we it out. That. <laughs> but I, I'm 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 flapping my wings. I'm declaring independence. But a hard thing for me, Chip, is I've worked for four decades downtown Denver, and I'm leaving there. I'm excited to be working closer to home in the tech center right at I-25 in Bellevue. What a beautiful office we've been able to it obtain. Does
0: look nice. Yeah, it looks really nice.
1: Well, that's why don't it, you tell?
0: Go ahead. Why don't you tell us exactly what kind of cases you handle?
1: Oh, boy. My ideal case is somebody who's been victimized by a bad guy. That could be a bad driver, a reckless driver, a negligent driver. But holy cow, there are ways to get money sometimes if you are a victim of a crime. I love helping people in that sort of a situation. My heart reaches out to them. And I love honest testimony. You know, we talk about Donald Trump, but you and I know this, this Republican Party that's been hijacked by Trump, let's see if they can shed him, but they've long been in bed with forces against consumer rights and the people we represent, they, grease, uh, they get greased by insurance companies to try to limit what our clients can recover. So, you know, there are two sides of that story, but you and I have chosen the right side. And let's right. be honest that the Republican Party is in bed with the insurance interests, and that's damn shame. And I hope they step away from Trump, too.
0: Well, somebody asked me one time, I stole this line from Bill Maher, but I think it's a good one. I'm not the hugest Bill Maher fan, but he's said some funny stuff. And this one hung with me. Uh, he said, why, why are you, with your, your background and, you know, what you do and and maybe the perceived success i've had why are you why do you lean the way you do and i said well honestly because here's the choice here's the choice i can get in bed with the evangelicals and the insurance companies or i can get in bed with the environmentalists and the trial lawyers and i choose the latter
1: good choice although all this in bed imagery seems a little. Like an orchid <laughs> <some point>. or
0: Yeah. <laughs> Probably need to change that. But I I can line up on one team and those that's unfortunately that's the teams. And and I've said for for a long time to a lot of people, anybody that'll listen, if I was elected governor, if I was elected president, which would never happen, but if I was elected, the first thing I would do is I would call the five top members of both parties over to my office. And I would then lock them in a room and say, you guys are going to fucking agree on one thing, one thing, and you're going to agree on passing a bill and a law together, one thing, before I let you out of here. Mm -hmm. I don't think they could do it, Craig. I Mm -hmm. think they would be in there for days.
4: And that's ridiculous.
0: There's something we can agree on, right?
1: Well, here's the thing. You're only 50. I call you Junior. And I'm at a point in my career where I'm pretty outspoken against Megan because it threatens what I do for a living, what you do for a living. The rule of law is under attack. We could go off on the Supreme Court, and we're going to keep talking because I like talking to you. You're smart. I like the way you curse. I love it all with the Texas (laughs) accent. But the bottom line is our profession is under attack. Rule of law is under attack. And okay, MAGA people, just like my dogs say, they're entitled (laughs) to representation, but not by me. They're not going to be happy with me, right? Because I'm outspoken on this. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of... I I can point to MAGA personal injury lawyers. It disgusts me that anybody I know would still be MAGA after what we hear from Cassidy Hutchinson. If you can't put together that kind of... Logic? then what are you going to do? I mean, the president's guilty of seditious conspiracy. He was the ringleader with a bunch of racist folks, too. People he knew had weapons. See, I keep coming back to it, but that's why somebody who's in bed with Donald Trump, to go back to that uh, imagery we keep using, I don't want to be in bed with Donald Trump or anybody who's in bed with him.
0: No, and you've spent a lot of time You've been ahead of this deal. I mean, all, all of these hearings and you should feel, I don't know that you needed it, but you, you should feel somewhat validated because you've been saying this a long well, time. Well, not and really. I saying, feel
1: guilty because if I, if I could deny it, I would, but I voted for Trump in 2016 and it was bad and I recognized it, especially after Charlottesville and I started advocating on the air against him and eventually they took my mic. Cut my mic, and boy, I know a lot about the media and Trump, talk radio and Trump, but they can't shut me up. I had the governor of Colorado and the leading Republican against them on my podcast last week, so I have great sponsorship, and that keeps going along with this new law firm. It's so nice of you, Chip, to let me talk about it with you. It's my Independence Day, and it feels real I, good. I love it. Free at last! Free your... at last! They got Almighty free at last!
0: <laughs> I wish I could see you saying oh, that. boy! The, uh... I did. I had my arms in. Let, let me in ask the you. Air. I want to ask you. I want to ask you a question about yes. this. And if we need to defer this to another show, we can. It's but right. What What caused you to to vote for Trump in the first place in 2016? I didn't. Why? Did you you like?
1: know what? There's one book, and and I I I, I look back on it a lot, and I talked about it with Jared Polis. I hated the Iran nuke deal. I hated giving that much money back to Iran. And Trump was very much against it. Clinton was for it. There was a book by named Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer, ostensibly a legitimate journalist. And he had a lot of documentation, what he wrote about, about the Clinton Global Initiative. Remember all that and how it was Uh kind of a self-dealing thing, and I still think it was. And remember those stories, Uranium One? That was in the New York Times. So I thought Hillary was corrupt. I thought Trump was a New York kind of guy. He can pretend he's pro-life, but we know he's pro-choice. He can pretend like he's Mr. AR-15, but really he's never handled a gun in his life. He has security guys. So I made the mistake of thinking this guy will govern from the middle and he'll do... He'll win two terms. It'll be easy for him. I didn't know he was going to go off and be crazy like this. Now there were signs. I missed them. I I, I look back, but I think between the Israel issue and my suspicions about Hillary, uh-huh. uh, I I did it. But. Uh,
0: when, when he you, said, bought the pop- you bought the populist bullshit, right? That's well, I, you
1: know, you always project <laughs> stuff you want to see on a person, right? Right. If you're going right. to vote for him. And, and uh, you'd have to admit that if he would have moved to the middle, I, he he could have maybe done something good for America. Peter surrounded I, himself with smart guys.
0: He can't do that, though, because no, he has he to can't. be the smartest no, guy. I, I, and and I, that bar's low. Did you know he
1: was this crazy? <laughs> Did you know that? No. Yes.
0: No, I, I just, I, my deal was um, where I never gave him a chance is a, you know, I'm been a hardcore for a while because of what I live with down here, and b, um, I didn't, I thought the way he treated people, I, I don't think the Bush family's a bad family. Okay, I've been around them a, enough and had them, you know, be my political leaders in texas in one form or the other for a really really long time george w bush the president second president bush spoke at my high school graduation he's a charming man and i I have respect for that family i don't necessarily agree of course with everything they say but i have respect for that family and when he treated jeb bush and rubio and cruz i don't care about but he still treated him and the rest of them when he treated them so badly he showed me his true colors and true character that he is nothing more than a drugstore bully.
1: Well, you were right. Hmm? Can I tell you and my I, George I Can that. I tell you my George W. Bush story to back you up sure. on him being charming? Yeah. When I'm running against Bill Ritter for DA, the Republican Party embraced me because Ritter was a Democrat. They didn't have a candidate, so I got invited to their soiree, including a big one on Cherry Hills Country Club. I think it was Walt Coble's house for a reception with George W. Bush, who was governor of Texas, flying up to be part of this Colorado Republican shindig and pre-party. Okay, and this guy's a golfer, so he's got a golf mat. When people wear spikes, you can clean it. And there's George W. Bush in the entryway. And my beautiful wife, Trish, arrives. And for once, she's wearing heels. She's already tall, but she's just looking beautiful. She's got a wonderful dress on. But her heel got stuck in the spike mat and she took a tumble and i mean she did a somersault with her dress kind of flying up over her head right into george w bush and and he was a (laughs) perfect gentleman he kind of helped her her out and and, 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 it's nice to meet you nice to see you're in good shape like that (laughs) it's so funny and then we talked at the marriott on hampton that's what it was at the at the big banquet, and he said, hey, I saw a bunch of your signs driving over here. You, you told me about your race, and you're doing good. You have your signs out, and that's where I put, and you might get a kick. My, I was I had placing victims first was my motto. At first, I was going to have okay. putting victims first, but if you read that, it it's like putting victims first. Yeah. And I've been a putting victim too many times to make fun of that. <laughs> <laughs> True. So anyway. It's so good to talk to you, Chip, on Independence Day. How do you celebrate the Fourth of July? Is that a big deal to you and your family?
0: Craig, I'm gonna be in Hawaii on Independence Day and I've always wanted to be over there because I don't know if you have spent much time in Hawaii, but they have it they take a different view of the United States and um I, I wanna see what it's all about. That's what I'm gonna be doing. What island?
1: Be well, which island are you going to?
0: Gonna be on the big island of Hawaii this time. We've been to a lot of them, but we're gonna be on the big Which island. Which part
1: of the big island? I've got friends over there.
0: On the Kona Coast? Oh boy.
1: I might have a yeah. golf partner for you. He wants <laughs> to do? play for ten dollars a hole. No, with inflation it's twenty. <laughs> and no, well, I'm not my, flying over there, but it's a guy. My son'll
0: be with my son'll be with me oh. and he can handle any he can handle anybody. He's a stick. So um, he'll he'll be i'll happily stick him on on whoever you got all man. right whoever you got.
1: well let's make this a regular date love talking about it thanks for letting me introduce the concept of my new law practice we're gonna kind of tease it out over the course of the next month sounds great getting a phone number all that sort of good stuff but people know how to find me and i know how to find you even in kona hawaii okay
0: that's awesome craig thank you very much for having me on i look forward to being all right all happy yourself.
1: birthday america
0: i agree with you on that happy birthday america
1: all right see you chip bye bye Michael of course is a great sponsor of my show but more than that he's my lawyer my end-of-life planning lawyer and i've got two dogs what about you
3: I have two dogs right now as well.
1: And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that.
3: So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets Um, you know a lot of people you know they've got their dogs and they love their dogs but then if somebody were to you know if you're if you were to pass away you know who's gonna take your dogs who would who would love your dogs as much as you do I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do but like I grew up with dogs and so if I were to pass away then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs so when you set up a pet trust you can dictate who's going to get those dogs, and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like
1: working with you, and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that?
3: It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them.
1: And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them?
3: Yep. And all deal with traffic so you don't have to.
1: Tell us how people can get in touch with you.
3: My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on, this, on the website.
1: All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at craigscoloradolaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at Craigs Colorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, I told you this would be good. Thank you. Rachel Gunders, you are magnificent. What a future. I wish I could invest in you because you're going places. If the world will, get out of your way. Sorry about what the baby boomers have done, but we're not done yet. And I'm not done. Craig Silverman Law begins right after the 4th of July. I like that starting date. I really like the freedom concepts contained in the magnificent book, By the Grace of the Game, about the amazing Grunfeld family. Thank you, Dan Grunfeld. Best wishes to you and your young family. And Chip Evans, I think you're a mainstay. I think you should come to Colorado. And I think you will. Let's play golf again. Happy 4th of July, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this special Independence Day edition. It's been impactful and important. And I'll see you next Saturday. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon,
6: Mountain Time. Visit com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.